1: Welcome
2: to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm joined by teacher and author Lama Somo on the Meta Hour podcast. Lama Somo is an American lama, author, and co-founder of the Namchak Foundation. She is one of the few American lamas in Tibetan Buddhism and also holds an MA in counseling psychology. She's the author of Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling? An Introduction and Guide to Tibetan Buddhist Practice. She is deeply passionate about reaching young generations and supporting those working for positive social change. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm happy to be here. I'm so happy to to talk to you. Usually uh, we are friends, and when we speak, it's on the phone, if not in person. Um, So this is different. Yeah. Everybody gets to listen in. Um, I am wondering if we, yes, (laughs) if uh, you can talk a little bit about meeting your teacher uh, and um, coming into contact with these teachings. I think we actually met, you and I, was it 74 or 75 or 76 in Boulder?
0: We did meet in Boulder, but I don't think it was quite that early. Okay. I think it was more like, oh, when was it? I, actually, early-ish 90s when I was okay. returning to meditation and actually wanting to get some instruction cause It turns out, you know, like if you want to learn how to play piano well, it's good to get instruction. Uh The same is true with meditation. And I hadn't had a chance before then. I'd been living in a very rural place and was trying to meditate daily anyway. And um, then I figured, well, I'm not doing a good job of it. I'm probably wasting my time. So I gave up and spent five years not doing daily meditation practice and discovered that even my pitiful attempts, had been helping me. And um, how can I say this? The thousands of tiny little decisions that we make in the day, um, if we keep coming to ourselves once a day, we tend to make those decisions coming more from who we truly are. And so I was more on track in my life when I was doing those first pitiful attempts at daily Mm -hmm. meditation. And then in the five years without meditation, I slowly but surely kind of got off track for me. And so uh, I realized it one day. I kind of woke up to it and realized it and um, vowed to myself that A, I was going to go back to doing daily meditation and B, I was going to get some instruction. And so the first instruction I got was you and Joseph's teaching meditation Mm -hmm. in (laughs) Boulder. Wow, yeah. And so um, I thought of you when I wrote the book, Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling? And I I thought, well, maybe she'd do a blurb for the yeah, book. And yeah. so I wrote to you out of the blue, and you were kind enough to answer. And, you know, I just had to mention, hey, you were my first meditation teacher. Yeah, that was so sweet. <laughs> and so then our friendship developed from there. And you met the Rinpoche in that same era? or? <laughs> uh Well, it was uh, not too long after that. Uh, In addition to just, uh, you know, doing daily practice, I was um, kind of doing the smorgasbord, uh, trying different teachers and seeing how different uh, lineages and teachers felt, you know, what was going to be right for me. And um, also in my daily meditations, I was sort of sounding the note on some other level, you know, calling my teacher Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I even wrote a list of qualities I wanted in the teacher and qualities I didn't want in the teacher and, you know, really trying to get clear in my mind. And um, it was after doing that for a while that um, I sort of stumbled onto Tukusangak Rinpoche and I didn't get that he was... um, you know, what I was sounding the note for. Uh, I didn't, you know, sense that right away. But then the next time I saw him was literally in my house. He came to my house to teach somebody else. <laughs> and while that was happening and I was sitting in, I realized, oh, my God, this is my teacher. Mm. You know, I just knew do it. And he knew it before I did because, you know, he's more tuned in. Um, so uh, that was how... I ended up finding him as my teacher, and I was, you know, also looking at these different lineages and different um, uh, ways of doing practice. And you know, this one felt good, that one felt good, but you know, not quite it. And then it was after I'd already realized that uh, I was pretty sure that uh, Vajrayana Buddhism, uh, Tibetan Buddhist practice, was the path for me. Mm-hmm. That I then met the Tukusanga and so it all sort of came together, and then I thought, well, do I have something better to do?
2: I'm just going (laughs) to go for it. So I did. That's great. (laughs) You know, I was just telling somebody this story last night because they were in my apartment visiting, and um, one of the things about the Tibetan Buddhist world and Tibetan culture is a a very different sense of time and uh, the unfolding of events, and so I thought of that when you were... Talking about your teacher knew before you did. And um, so the art, the story behind the artwork was I was sitting with one of my own Tibetan teachers, Sonny Rinpoche, um, in Colorado. Uh, and it was early September 2001. And when I left Colorado, and, and he had been saying in the course that he um, had grown up with this Lama, who was an older Lama, uh, who was an artist and a very beautiful artist. And I got back to New York, and the artists, um, that particular artist's work was going to be shown at Tibet House, which was very close to my apartment, and, and I got very excited, and I went to the opening, and it was very beautiful. I just loved his work, and, uh, and then I left. I went back home to Barry, and then 9-11 happened, and uh, by the time I came into the city, which was about a week later, I stayed in the city for two months, teaching at Tibet House, surrounded by this Lama's art. And so Mm -hmm. at some point I I got a hold of an email address from him and I wrote to him and I said, I drew so much strength from your artwork as I was teaching in these incredibly trying and traumatic times and didn't hear anything from him. Like eight years later, I got a a phone call from a friend (laughs) in New York saying he was visiting and he wanted to see me in response to his email. So eight years later, I went (laughs) trudging uptown and she was trying to help him sell his work. And so it was all on display in her living room. And At some point in our conversation, he reached over and pulled a painting off the wall and gave it to me as a gift. So there it was in my apartment, my current apartment, you know, um, hanging on the wall. So I was telling that story and thinking, like, eight years, okay, you know, like, when it's supposed to happen, (laughs) it'll
0: happen. Yeah, in our case, it was nearly 20 years. (laughs) Wow, yeah. It's funny. I know. Well, yeah, and it may not just be. To that in sense of time, but yeah. it, you know, sometimes these things just come around uh, that way in our lives. Yeah,
2: it's true. So, <laughs> when you were already a mom, of course, when you met him, right? Uh, your teacher and are now. I was a mom. You were a mom. Is that correct? You you had children. Yeah. yeah. Yep, three. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so this whole time of very formal study, you've been balancing family life with very deep study and practice. Um, You speak Tibetan, rumor has it. It's true. (laughs) And uh, we've been in Ubers together where you've talked to the driver. Um, (laughs) And uh, currently you're overseeing the project of the planning and construction of the Namchuk Retreat Ranch in Montana. So maybe you could say something to us about balance and, and having such intense study, and practice along with the rest of your life?
0: Mm. Well, um, I have to begin by giving the caveat that it's a work in progress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wish I could say that I was, you know, balancing everything gracefully, and I'd be lying. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let me just start by saying that. Um, I often take on... In my excitement and exuberance, I take on more than I can mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, really juggle. And also, I do sequence so that it isn't as though um, it, it, most of the time the, the balls all you know fall down at once. You know, Usually I've got one or two in the air while I'm holding the other two mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, so, uh, for example, when the kids were really little, the daily med- meditation I did, and it wasn't much at that point, uh, the daily meditation I did was at night, uh, right after the kids all went to bed, mm-hmm. because uh, in the morning, I had a couple of early risers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a busy schedule getting everybody ready for school anyway. so the best time turned out to be just before bed. Um, and then, as once the kids were all in school, when I returned to meditation um, it was after the kids were in school that I had time uh, to do some meditation. That was the best time. And I was starting to really pursue it seriously uh, at that time. And I was divorced, and the um, silver lining to divorce is that the kids are sometimes with the other parent mm-hmm. uh, in many cases, and that was the case for us. And uh, he liked to travel. I liked to go into retreat or travel or whatever. And so we worked out our schedules, and um, the kids, you know, were at the other parent's place sometimes when I was in retreat. Mm -hmm. And then they graduated, you know, so again, that is sequencing, you know, and I was really ready to do longer-term retreat, which was then possible because uh, the kids were older. So I really immersed myself in several months of retreat a year for, you know, several years. And I was also able to do a lot of teaching and, uh, you know, creating our, being a part of creating our sangha and so Mm -hmm, on. mm -hmm. So um, I would have to say it's juggling and sequencing. It's not just doing everything all at once. It's just impossible.
2: Well, even now, I'm sure it takes a lot of commitment because they're, uh, if you're planning the construction of a someday retreat center, you know, the ranch, um yeah. that's that's a big commitment in and of itself. So to also have the yeah. commitment to not forego intensive periods of
0: practice I know it takes a lot. Yeah, Yeah, you certainly know that. And yes, and then uh committing to writing this series of books mm-hmm. and I'm about to go into a combination writing and practice retreat uh, in a couple of weeks, so a few weeks. So I do sort of pull, again, you know, I sequence. So I pull out of my outer activities like um, uh, traveling and teaching and building the facility and so Mm -hmm. on uh, to doing very inward work. And uh, the rhythm of the days is is pretty intense with four hours of practice and four hours of four, five, six hours of writing, but um, I, I really love it. Uh, I love everything I do, and I think that also because I'm juggling and I'm not always doing one thing that would sort of tire one part of me out, mm-hmm. it makes it possible to, you know, sort of go from one thing to the next and, um, you know, really give myself fully to this or that thing that I happen to be doing at that moment.
2: Well, I am mean, really inspired. I'm very inspired by you, really, because um, you know, you know, you and I were touched recently, and I said I was, I was gonna, because uh, I'm hopefully writing another book, and um, when I, you know, I said I'm gonna spend much of July and August not really traveling, uh, and you said, oh, I'm gonna spend much of it in retreat. I thought, oh, that's that's a step further. <laughs> that's like, that's really good. <laughs>
0: Well, I need it, <laughs> you know, because the whirlwind of everyday life where I'm uh, involved in building this whole, not this, just the retreat center, but the community mm-hmm. of people who are, you know, uh, some of whom are going to come to that, a small percentage of them, really. But there's this whole big sangha uh, who could uh, appreciate and enjoy these teachings, Who many of whom will never do any retreat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but can still benefit so you know keeping track of all that I don't get to immerse in uh, the practices and uh, a lot of the Tibetan practices it really requires a two-hour session to do it properly Mm -hmm. and that's tough to do on a daily basis you know Mm
1: -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. so it's nice when I can really settle into the practice uh, during retreat so the word Sangha does mean community
2: and is, the, is your community or the the Nomchak community uh, really international? Is it mostly in the U.S.?
0: Um, well, the one that we're building uh, from the standpoint of the NAMTCHAK Foundation is within the U.S., mm-hmm. but um, within our lineage as mm-hmm. a the whole, uh, there's uh, – quite a bit happening in Asia. Mm-hmm. So I go to Taiwan every year and teach at uh, a center there. There's um, another uh, Sangha uh, community in Hong Kong that's been there for a long time. I've sometimes gone there, but mostly just to Taiwan. And there's a community developing in Vietnam. And they want me to come there, but I'm just like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I, I just don't have the time. And um, I, I think that, uh, Well, and of course, there's to that. So I think that covers uh, where we're most active. How is
2: it teaching in Taiwan? I've never taught in Asia. I'm looking back and trying to decide if I'm speaking the truth or not. Yeah, I think I've never taught in Asia. Uh, I've only had Asian teachers. I've never had a Western teacher, although some of them I've practiced with in the West and continue Mm -hmm. to, but um, I've never actually gone back there and taught. And I've given a lecture, maybe in New Delhi or something like that, but... But not really taught. And so I I wonder how it would feel for me.
0: You know, it's been a really interesting experience. And it began by my trying to refuse to do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Rinpoche's brother, Tukusana Rinpoche's brother, um, uh, Dr., well, he's a Vopan Master uh, Tashi. And he kept insisting, we'd talk by phone, and he'd keep insisting you've got to come here and teach. And I'm like, why? I'm an American Jewish person who would be teaching Tibetan Buddhist practice to Taiwanese people. Can you explain to me why I should do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, you're there. Why Why isn't that enough? And he said, no, no, it's different when they hear it from an American with a degree in psychology. Mm-hmm. And you're a modern person. You are a mother and so on and so Uh, they are lay people, I'm a monk, you know, and there are things that you understand and approaches you have and talking about scientific studies on the effects of meditation and so on that's going to hit them differently, and I really think you could be of benefit. So I said, look, I will give it a try. I'll come once. Mm -hmm. And I did, and um, it landed really well. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was hysterical because when I first started teaching um, on the break, we were sitting there and he, he was laughing. He said, if you taught like that at the monastery, they'd laugh you off the stage, mm-hmm. I mean, it's
2: just,
0: you know, because you're talking on such a pre-kindergarten level. <laughs> um, and I said, yes, I'm doing that quite intentionally because we in America don't know why we should meditate. Uh, we're not so sure about reincarnation or karma. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't understand, and we need to understand, what is the function of this practice? How does it work? So how do I use this as a tool uh, so that I can become a better, happier person? And that's how I approached it as an American and new to it all. Uh, and so that's how I presented it to Americans, and it seemed to you know, help them to be able to connect with the practices and really use them well. These are very refined tools that we need to understand how to use. Mm -hmm. And um, he was kind of like, okay, whatever. Well, (laughs) the response really was enthusiastic. And instead of their sort of uh, having sort of an in-their-bones, almost uh, habitual, super sort of belief that the lamas could do ceremonies and leave it to the professionals, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Their attitude really started to shift, and they were like, hey, I want to get me some of this. Mm. (laughs) I want to feel better, and here's how I can. And that was never really explained to them. So I continued to cause uh, Dr. Tashi to laugh a lot. (laughs) Uh-huh. I recently taught a deity practice, and again, I was starting really from several steps before what he would consider the beginning. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, what is this practice for? How do we use this practice? Uh, you know, and what what can it do for us? And, um, you know, I started with the very foundational aspects of it and actually talked them through the practice itself, which normally... The Tibetans don't do. you know they don't have you actually um, sitting there in meditation for a good part of the session. Uh, but I did, and I not only did that, but I was talking them through that meditation, mm-hmm. which again is unusual for them. And uh, they loved it, and he was sort of saying, "Get to the good stuff, come on." <laughs> And I was like, no, 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 this is where we need to start. I really believe it. And sure enough, the la- he was on my left at lunchtime, and the lady on my right was saying, I've been doing Tibetan practices for years and years, and I can't believe. It's like now I understand mm. how to do this practice, and I'm going to do this practice in retreat. I'm so excited. Oh, wow, that's <laughs> so, said, so sweet. Yeah, I know. So I said, Dr. Tashi, can you talk to this person? <laughs> yeah, really? Well, to his credit, he did talk to a bunch of people and he said, I get it now. It, you know, they, this is where they do need to start. And mm-hmm. they're appreciating it. So he's never given me shit again. <laughs> so. That's so great. Well, maybe
2: that's one <laughs> yeah. of the positive things about Western culture or American culture meeting these ancient teachings is that it is a kind of revitalization that people, I find, well, my first of all, my experience certainly in, Countries like Burma is that uh, Asian monastic pedagogy is all about repetition. You just hear the same thing again and again and again <laughs> and again. And that doesn't exactly fly here. And then there's a kind of practicality that I think here that's admirable. It's like, I don't want to just admire, you know, some saint from mm-hmm. before. Like, how do I bring this into my life? How do I make it real? Uh, and that, I think, is, yeah. is crucial.
0: Well, yeah, and the Taiwanese are very, at least in Taipei, it's a very modern city. It Mm -hmm. reminds me a little of Manhattan, Manhattan. and um, they want to know, much as any modern Mm -hmm. people want to know. But the difference is that they have that combined with there being uh, Buddhist culture from so many generations back, Mm -hmm. that it's in their bones, and so there's this beautiful... Connecting of the wires that happens for them, this, uh, frankly, it's harder for me to um, help people have here because I kind of have to build the receptors for everything before I can give mm-hmm, it to them. Mm-hmm. There, they sort of have the receptors all ready to go, and I just hook up the wires, and off they go. These practitioners are, like, putting us to shame. <laughs> They're doing fantastically mm-hmm. well once the wires were connected. So I, my hat's off to the Taiwanese, anyway. I, I haven't taught in uh, other parts of Asia.
2: Actually, it, just as, works, as you say that, I remember I had a profoundly uh, enlightening experience in Taipei. Do you want to hear it? Oh, <laughs>
0: yeah, I sure do.
2: <laughs> I'd gone there, actually, with some friends on my way to Dharamsala. And uh, my very much loved um, Tibetan teacher, Niosho, Ken Rinpoche was there visiting in taiwan and we stopped there to see him and um he'd always been you know kind of frail and not in great health but he seemed especially frail then so we saw him in taipei and uh it was kind of bittersweet and then he said that he was moving the next day to some suburban place somewhere and uh, we should wait a couple of days and then go visit him there so we did that and this was you know we were all standing outside the hotel waiting for the Taxis to take us to the suburbs to visit him And we're all holding like flowers and fruit And these different offerings And I was just feeling so sad I thought, wow, I might only see him one more time It might be just one more time that I see him And how, you know, desolate is that a notion Just one more time And then we all got into these different taxis And every taxi got completely lost Like unbelievably lost So we uh-huh. couldn't find him for a really long time and, and then I started thinking I would do anything to see him one more time like one more time had moved from like the worst thing imaginable to the most beautiful possibility that could exist. And mm. uh, as it turned out, <clears throat> as it turned out, the taxis did find him, and he he was not really all that ill compared to how he normally was, which was not well. And he lived for many, many more years, and I saw him many more times. But uh, it was such an amazing transition from the worst thought in the world to like, wouldn't that be the best thing that could ever happen to see him one more time. So that was my Taiwan experience.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, (laughs) that is um, quite an inspiring rendition of the concept of reframe. Yeah. Yeah, really. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Um, (laughs) I know. I, well, thank you because that's such a fantastic illustration of it and how ephemeral our states of mind are, you know, and just a shifting of perspective creates a whole different state of mind around exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Cir- uh, which is reminding me of uh, Rinpoche when he was imprisoned mm. uh, while he was still in Tibet. He was a kid; he was thirteen year old, mm-hmm. and was imprisoned for nine plus years, and um, he. He was a reincarnated lama, a tuku, and so he was put together with the most uh, terrible threats to society, which was other tukkus and, um, you know, scholars and great accomplished lamas. And so they were all thrown together, and he ended up, uh, at first he was furious, as you can imagine. He, he, was, he said it was like he was in this burning hell realm mm. because there was this burning hot resentment. He was furious in his heart, you know, uh, for the Chinese doing this to his country, doing this to him, tearing apart his family and so on. He and his father were both thrown in prison together. Uh, At first they were together and then separated. So um, that was how he started his frame of mind in relation to prison, which was certainly understandable. I mean, you think of how most 13 year olds feel about their parents mm-hmm. and their home, <laughs> you know, and here he was 13 years old in this situation. Oy vey. So yeah. he um, then met up with uh, this one great llama who was sort of a llama's llama, one of the hidden llamas, uh, really amazing. Mm. Uh, it, it, this was Tugu um, Chemchok,. and he was, I, I had a chance to meet him later, just an amazing being. So he uh, was the cook in this prison. He was pulled out of uh, nearly permanent retreat, pulled out of his cave, and thrown into prison. And um, he was then dubbed cook. So on Sundays, they had uh, the day off from hard labor, and he would teach Kusanga Kuruvache. And he really called him to task and said, um, look, I know you really resent them, but you know, you're harming yourself in doing that. And I think you need, you know, to change your perspective. In other words, reframe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so he said, uh, sometime in some lifetime since beginning was time, and you've had, you know, countless lifetimes, you've done something that uh, left its trace on your soul, if you will, um, that is now, you know, Causing this circumstance, it's it's uh, sort of blossoming into this circumstance, and um, you could either go ahead and live through the results and you know burn them off as quickly as possible and then be done with them, or you could uh, live out of resentment and anger and sow the seeds for more suffering of some kind or another. Uh, so, you know, that's your decision, mm-hmm. and your outer circumstances will be whatever they're going to be. The experience of happiness or suffering is inside of you, Mm -hmm. but you have the power to do something about that. And then he taught him these methods, and uh, Rinpoche practiced them like he'd never practiced before, even though he practiced since he was a tiny little toddler, being a reincarnated lama and all. Uh, He said in prison was when he really took the Dharma Mm -hmm. to heart. Mm -hmm. And he said as the months passed, he slowly was able to turn his attitude around, and every time he felt the anger, that was like a little red flag for him to look at, okay, what am I doing here? And he started to have compassion for the uh, the guards mm-hmm. because they were sowing seeds for suffering in the future. Mm-hmm. While he was doing sort of a work study, if you will, mm-hmm. <laughs> working off his karma while studying the Dharma and getting such benefit from it, he got to the point where he felt like he was in a pure land. He went from a hell realm mm. to a pure land. And he, he truly didn't care if he stayed there the rest of his life because he was surrounded by these wonderful lamas. He was pursuing the Dharma despite the conditions, you know, it was sort of in his mind had become like a monastery with bad food, mm-hmm. if you will. <laughs> <laughs> surly, you know, guards and this kind of thing. But uh, he was absolutely at peace. So it was the same experience but he had completely changed. Mm-hmm. I that's mean, there's the so experience. much in what you say
2: that's also difficult for us to understand, you know, unless we, you know, when you say he developed compassion, we have to think of, it depends on whether we think of compassion as a strength or a weakness, you know. If you think of compassion mm-hmm. as a strength, then you go, wow, that's incredible. If you think of it as just kind of, you know, getting by and covering over painful feelings and not letting yourself mm. feel angry. Then you think, well, yeah, you know, like, I'm um, nice for him. You know, it's good he didn't suffer as much. But um, I'm just wondering, like, you know, how often or I don't know if this is even a question, but you have a, a background um, of, in psychology and Western psychology. And and yeah. if there are tools from there that you bring to understand the uh, Vajrayana teachings more deeply that kind of clarify some things, like what I just said about compassion Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, because we also live in a time where questions of exploitation and uh, like emotional abuse and power are very much Mm -hmm. up. And so um, I'm just curious because you have this background.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, that was one reason I found Vajrayana appealing, is that it had room for it, uh, for compassion being um, manifested in either peaceful ways or wrathful ways, mm-hmm. really fierce mm-hmm. ways. So you have these archetypal figures, these uh, deities in the beautiful Takas that you saw and were so inspired by that speak to you on this deep archetypal level. Um, and we are actually to um, pursue practice, uh, deep practice, living with these beings and actually seeing ourselves as this or that being. Mm-hmm. Because we have all the, the archetypes inside of us, and that's something I knew from Jungian psychology, which was my main emphasis. Uh, so if I'm going to be, for example, the wrathful Pema uh, which is a wrathful form of gurubite. Um There's nothing namby-pamby about him at all. He's mm-hmm. got fangs, his hair is flames, he's surrounded by flames, and he is a destroyer of modern diseases. He was especially uh, sort of aimed at, at that. And so um, we can be ferocious and fierce, uh, and yet, never let go of holding whoever it is in compassion. But the Dalai Lama says if we um, try peaceful means and convince people, that's wonderful. And a big percentage of the time, that can work if we're uh, skillful, bringing skill with compassion and wisdom uh, along with it. We can do that. But sometimes, you know, somebody's just stubborn mm-hmm. and. Uh, even for their own sake, so that Mm -hmm. they don't cause more suffering for themselves, never mind people around them, Um, then out of compassion, we sometimes have to take a really wrathful stance and uh, act wrathfully. So the example I tend to like to give uh, from my mothering is when uh, one of my kids was in her uh, terrible twos, which... isn't really so terrible, it's just that uh, the kid is trying to assert themselves, uh, mm-hmm. and their ego. Well, so that was her developmental task. However, we lived just down from a, a small country road that was going around a bend and up a hill and so on, and so it was a blind curve right there at mm-hmm. the top of our driveway. And so she was heading toward the end of the driveway, and I explained to her, no, you can't go there because cars go there really fast. They can't see you. They'll bump into you. They'll break your body. You know. And I basically said it in terms she would understand. <laughs> and so she then ran as fast as her little legs could carry her toward the end of the driveway because that was her job as a mm-hmm. two-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I did my job as a mom. And out of love for her, I swooped her up, uh, pulled her into the house, and gave her sort of a ceremonial. Uh, pat on the butt, which I'd never done, Mm -hmm. and so she was shocked and started crying. Um, But she also didn't run to the end of the driveway again. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I just had to make sure she... I mean, the neighbor's dog was killed on that very Mm -hmm. blind corner. Mm -hmm. So there's an example of what we are asked to inhabit in uh, Tibetan uh, Vajrayana practice. Mm -hmm. So I'm comfortable with that because we do sometimes have to uh, take a firm stance and act in a fierce way. Um, But the litmus test is, while we're doing that, are we just pissed Mm -hmm. or are we feeling love and compassion and still connected to that person even as we're taking that fierce stance? Mm -hmm. That's my litmus test.
2: Well, that has a lot of implications for social justice, doesn't it? It sure does. Something we're both yeah. passionately interested in and I know you've had a lot of experience, um, working with people in that field. So you do you sometimes yeah. do uh like workshops or retreats for people who are engaged in, in those ways?
0: I as a matter of fact, I just did one. You did? <clears throat> yes, and you didn't even know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, there's um, an organization that's also in its formative stages, so we're not the only ones, and uh, they're called People's Hub, and uh, peopleshub.org. And this is a group of activists who are experienced as activists and do it in a positive, loving, yet... Uh, sometimes fierce way, sometimes uh, just uh, gentle persuasion, whatever it takes, you know, um, uh, but skillful. Uh, so they've come together to be a resource and clearinghouse so that people who are experienced in various aspects of activism can be uh, a resource and conduct workshops for local groups mm-hmm. who want to get stuff done. Uh, so I just think this is a wonderful idea, and it's sort of like um, VRBO online kind of thing, except for activism. So you should, you can just go there and see, you know, what kind of workshop might we need to help us, you know, keep Walmart out of our town or whatever it is they're trying to do, you mm-hmm. know, some environmental action or whatever it is. Um, and so I was invited to do a little training with the trainers. Um, and they do have their own training so that uh, there's a certain level of competency as trainers that these people uh, will have. And so I really enjoyed being able to work with them and uh, really talk with them about, you know, the inside piece, because then the outside comes along so much better. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I am a big believer, and I sort of developed this in why Aaron Stern, my dear friend Aaron Stern, and I developed in conversation this idea of personal, community, world, and that all of us as human beings want to be effective and active in all three of those spheres personal, community, and world. Mm -hmm. And so when I mentioned that to these folks, they were all excited because they were seeing how um, we do need all three of those levels. If they want to be effective in the world, they must deal with their own, uh, you know, insides so that they aren't coming from uh, a wounded place, but more of a balanced, healthy place, and um, that they aren't as effective alone as they are in community, but then the community has to have its act together, and so mm-hmm. there needs to be uh, attention given to that and nurturing given to that. And all of us want to affect the world for the better, I believe. Mm-hmm. And they believe that too. So we were very simpatico with all that. And so I just felt um, such satisfaction in working with them, because I could help them with that, mainly with that inner piece, uh, that inner part, uh, so that they could employ tools that uh, were going to help them with that part. And, and they were excited to weave that together with the other two parts. That's
2: fabulous. So I'm um, very curious now how you entered that organization. Was it one person that was yes. familiar uh, with your work? Or?
0: Yes. Uh, so the founder of that organization, Sarah Van Gelder, um, is a friend. Um, she is a co-founder of Yes Magazine mm-hmm. and uh, is now mainly immersed in uh, founding this organization, People's Hub, uh, she's also an author. And so uh, she and I were just having coffee and talking about this, and somehow we hatched this plan that <laughs> I would work with, um, first meet with uh, the main person who's training the trainers, she herself has a daily meditation practice, mm-hmm. yoga practice, very strong, and she's been an activist all her life. And, um, so it, it was just wonderful meeting with her, and then um, they took the e-course that we offer at Nam mm-hmm. And um, after that, then I did a meditation coaching session with them. So that's how that all sort of one thing led to another. That's fantastic. Um,
2: because I, you know, I'm old enough. To be from an era where, uh, you know, a lot of activists would look at what we might have called spiritual work as really uh, a waste of time, you know. Right. And and right. something kind of self-indulgent and you're just wanting to sit around and feel good and, you know, look at all the terrible, you know, ordeal people are living with. and um, So it's kind of incredible when it—I mean— I believe it always has come together in that I would look at something like the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. which I consider a profoundly spiritual movement. Being all yeah. about love, you know. And um and yet yeah, yeah, you and, know, there's often been a divide. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean true equanimity means feeling passionately lovingly connected to all beings. It's mm-hmm. not about you know, well, I don't care, you know, I mean I'm equally uncaring yeah. about everybody. Right. It's yeah. Yeah, so it's true equanimity. Um, yeah, so uh, I agree with you. That was the thinking among activists. The activists thought um, the um, meditators were self-indulgent and the meditators thought the activists were running around making as many messes as they were trying to clean mm-hmm, up because mm-hmm. they weren't of their inner work, and they should just sit down and shut up. So <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm happy to see that now there is... Um, There are enough people in the activist world who have sort of come to the end of um, not cultivating their inner life and bettering it, Um, and then going ahead and learning, uh, going to uh, psychotherapy as well as uh, learning practices for cultivating a Mm -hmm. happier, better mind. Uh, And so that's uh, improved their quality of life as well as, um, you know, what they're able to manifest on the outside because, you know, you don't get in your own way as much when you're uh, being mindful Uh, and, you know, when you've done some of these practices. I think the meditation world has been a little bit slower, to be honest, Mm -hmm. in moving into more activism. And I've heard some people say, and I think they might be right, that uh, in America, you know, we believe in rugged individualism. And so the part of um, Buddhism as a whole, the the spectrum of practices and so on and experiences you can have, the one that people took up was individual meditation. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a strong... uh, sense of community uh, quite often, and even less strong sense of, hey, you know, I'm this one wave on this big ocean, and I am the ocean, (laughs) both, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so if somebody else is suffering, I'm suffering, Mm -hmm. and I need to respond. Uh, That was um, something that I think we in America, for whatever reason, we're a little slow to Pick up on, mm-hmm. you know, but the Buddha was a good example. He certainly addressed some key um, causes of suffering in India, you know, where he was at that time. For example, the caste system. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think now there is starting to be more and more of this sense among the. Meditation community at large that, hey, you know, there's this world out there that we are connected to. And if we really believe that, which, you know, we're practicing correctly, mm-hmm. we're bound to feel more and more, we feel the need to respond. You know, compassion, which is the basis of Buddhism, is about feeling so deeply and affectionately connected with everybody that. We hate to see them suffer. We want to take that suffering away and give them happiness.
1: Mhm
2: definitely well I, I agree, and I've also faced um you know not in a a huge way, but you know every time i well one of my great great passions is voting. I think everybody needs to vote and uh, mm-hmm. it's <laughs> it's very close to a Dharma teaching for me, in that it talks about one's innate dignity and uh, having a voice and being counted and not being overlooked and not being mm-hmm. um, kind of marginalized and uh, I think it's a very beautiful thing it's it's like a sacred act for me and so I always really encourage people to vote and every now and then somebody writes if I read an article or something and you know the comment is something like uh, <laughs> my favorite comment is I used to think so much more of you <laughs> before I read that um, <laughs> which has happened a few times I think, well I'm sorry you know <laughs> uh, You know, why are you asking people to participate in an evil system or a violent system? Well, because that's the system, you know, and like um, it's like we have to engage. From my point of view, we have to participate or everything else is just a story about how much we care, you know, and people participate in different ways. Not everyone has to march or or something. I think art, for example, is a revolutionary act and uh, creativity Mm -hmm. and so on. But but we need to act and. Uh, otherwise, it really is just kind of words. And, and so I've seen my popularity <laughs> ebb and flow as I as I make these comments. But what to do, you know, it means something to me. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, I agree with you that, um, you know, although our society has a lot of failings, I think the fact that people, all of us who are citizens, have the opportunity to vote um Is not our worst failing (laughs) by any means. I think that's a good thing. And so, as you say, it's a means at our disposal that we can use. Any of us um, to uh, put, you know, our vote toward uh, change for the better. If we can find a candidate who we feel is better, Mm -hmm. and we can often vote on referenda, and all of this is. you know something we can do and i agree with you it's not the only thing we can do Mm -hmm. but you know why not both hands i I don't see any (laughs) problem so i agree with you and actually i wish that um uh voting day were a national holiday yes number one number two that it be required that people Mm -hmm, vote mm -hmm. that that you know part of participating in a democracy is that you participate enough to vote.
2: Yeah. Yeah. All right. (laughs) That's my opinion. I agree. So now that I've gotten us all (laughs) riled up, I'm wondering if we could close with you uh, leading us in a meditation uh, (laughs) from your lineage, since um, it's uh, maybe less well-known to a lot of the people listening. Well,
0: I would love to. And since we've been talking a lot about compassion, I was thinking of doing one that's foundational to our lineage uh, and kind of Tibetan in style, uh, and that is Dong which -hmm. means sending sending and receiving. Uh, So the thing about uh, compassion, as we've been talking about, is that um, if you're really feeling it with all of you, then um, you just not only hate to see somebody suffer and want them happy, but you want to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And quite often we feel kind of powerless. I think that might be part of the reason why people don't vote is they just feel like, well, that's a drop in the bucket, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. why should I bother? That's just so hopeless and you know, compared with the magnitude of the problems and the suffering why bother? Yeah. Um, and so the other reason I really like Dong Lin is that I feel like, okay, finally I can do something to take away this person's suffering and bring them happiness. Mm-hmm. I'll explain how that works. Uh, what I like about it is that the science buff in me and, and psychologist in me likes that it gets past the frontal lobes and discursive kind of um, uh, word-based thinking and gets to much deeper parts of the brain and deeper parts of ourselves. Uh, And it does this through visualization, which uh, when you visualize something, your brain lights up in the same way as if you actually were experiencing it. Uh, so I like that about mm-hmm. visualization, and that's what I liked about uh, Jungian psychology is there was a lot of that going, imagery going on and so on, using that to affect deep uh, transformative change. And it also works with breath, which, as you well know, uh, is so basic to us. And the other nice thing about the breath is it um, is both under our conscious control and unconscious control, and so those are two different... Uh, uh, aspects of our nervous system. And they come together in breathing because it is both of those things connected to both. Um, so, it all, the other thing I love about Vajrayana is that it takes our natural, habitual tendency, I should say it's more habitual than maybe natural, but I don't know, I wonder if it's baked into our hardwiring as humans, mm-hmm. that we like to, we tend to have... Interactions with people in our minds. Uh, Anybody who's sat and done meditation knows that we often are doing that when we're supposed to be Mm -hmm. focusing on something else. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what if we took that tendency and actually turned it toward uh, cultivating compassion? And I I also want to mention the proof in the pudding for a second, because um, in uh, studies in the laboratory of uh, how the brain acts, um, what strengths get developed uh, through practices just like Dong Lin. Mm-hmm. Um, they tested many Tibetan masters who had done hours and hours of Dong Lin, uh, this compassion practice, and found that when they showed movies of people suffering, that the um, brain acted in such a way that it was like connecting up with the motor, the muscles, to get up to go and physically help that person. So, mm. there you get that connection to action that's somehow built into the, the practice itself. Um, so, maybe that's why, you know, part of why I feel so moved to act uh, and not just, mm-hmm. you know, sit there in some simpering sort of idea of compassion. Uh, it doesn't have to be. At all, you know simpering and passes mm-hmm. uh, but, but you know to act to relieve suffering and and bring happiness, so here's um, the practice, and it's very simple: you start with yourself, and we uh, in the West really need compassion for ourselves as an important basis for compassion for others, and we're a sentient being after all, so we're eligible so um Then we'll step it out to one person who we easily feel compassion for, we easily feel connected to, and then more and more and more. And we step it out in sort of concentric circles until it includes all beings. And by that time, this tide of compassion, this wanting to take away suffering and bring happiness is very strong. And by the end, um, we feel quite different. I've seen this again and again. I've done little experiments asking people to write down how they feel now and then how they feel after doing the practice and certainly how I feel after doing the practice. But if you're suffering from something in the moment yourself and that's the theme of your meditation, and you start with compassion for yourself in feeling that pain and then step that out, I find that it's much more powerful.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So I like to recommend that people... Um, to something that's up for them in the moment. Um, so then the problem is when I'm teaching a whole bunch of people, everybody could have something different. Um, so that gets a little tricky in moments like this when everybody listening has got all kinds of different things that are up for them. So I'm gonna, uh, just so that I can be more specific, I'm gonna pick a theme, uh, but I'm hoping you listeners at home will pick something that's up for you and do kind of the same pattern but just with your own theme. So the theme that I'm going to pick now is one that's uh, kind of popular in the suffering department, Uh, and that's the theme of being misunderstood, Mm -hmm. sort of put into a box that's not for me and I'm being seen in a bad light when it's like, wait, no, that's not who I am. That's a very painful thing for us human beings, I think, Uh, and maybe especially for us Westerners, I don't know. Uh, But anyway, so that's a theme that I'm sure we've all experienced at one time or another. And since time is not actually linear, according to scientists or Buddhists, um, then we can use that, any of us, right now as a theme. So I suggest closing your eyes so you can visualize well. And um, you're gonna, for most of this, you're gonna imagine somebody in front of you who's suffering from this theme of being misunderstood, cast in a negative light uh, that's really not who we are, and suffering from that. And we want to take that suffering away, so we breathe in the dark clouds, uh, like uh, thick, heavy uh, clouds of suffering. and. Uh, we take that right into our heart. So we breathe that, those clouds in into our heart. And through our compassionate heart can come bright, airy, light clouds of happiness that soak, we see that soaking into the face of the person in front of us. And um, we just do that again and again, starting with ourselves and moving out in concentric circles. So. We can imagine our small suffering self either in front of us or for some reason I like to actually have that small suffering self inside my heart and have my heart breathe in those dense clouds. Uh, So pick one and you can try another tomorrow, uh, whichever you like. So let's start. So there is our small suffering self. Perhaps it's inside your heart. Perhaps it's in front of you. You want to take that suffering away, that suffering of being misunderstood that can be so painful. Maybe think of a specific time when you've suffered from that. So you see the pained face of that suffering one. You want to take away that suffering. So you breathe in the dense clouds of that suffering right into your heart and breathe out into them, the bright clouds of happiness, ultimate happiness, forever happiness. And see those soak into that suffering one. And taking couple of breaths like that. You see their face change. You see them relax. Their face is glowing and smiling. And know that your heart is this portal where all of that suffering can come in and then go to that great ocean that I was describing before, that ocean of awareness out of which all of us as the waves come, and it's out of that ocean that immense joy can come for this. Now we imagine somebody who we easily feel compassion for. We see them in front of us. And surely at some time they've also really suffered from being misunderstood. We don't want them to suffer from this either. We know this suffering. And so we take that suffering away and breathe it in. We see those dense clouds coming in. And because of the compassion in our hearts, we can then easily bring through the bright, light clouds of happiness and see it soaking might imagine some of the people around us, if we're in a city, maybe people walking on the street or in our apartment building, driving on the street nearby. And I'm sure at some time they've also experienced this pain. And we don't want them to experience it either. And so as this tide of compassion rolls out, We feel it rolling out in all directions for all of them, so we breathe in all of their suffering through the doorway of our heart and breathe out joy and happiness for them, then we might imagine all the kids in classrooms and schoolyards all over the world who are being bullied right now. They're being misunderstood in a very painful way. We don't want them to suffer from that. So we take away that suffering right now and breathe it And just as strongly, we're breathing out the glowing clouds of happiness, seeing it soak into And their faces change to a glowing smile. And then remembering that linear time is an illusion. We think that all beings, not even just all humans, but all beings have at one time or another experienced this pain in some form or another. And we don't want any of them to experience that. And so right now, we'll breathe that in, that suffering, not the stories, just the suffering itself. We breathe in those dense, heavy clouds. And breathe out the glowing, spacious clouds into all of Wow.
2: Thank you so much on that note Wow It was really wonderful to talk to you today And to learn more about Lama Soma's work and teachings But her name, by the way, is spelled T-S-O-M-O To learn more about Lama Soma's work and teachings You can visit www.namchak.org www.namchak, Thank you
0: Thanks so much for having me
1: Thank you for listening. For
2: more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at sharonsalzberg.com.